0: Perhaps you can remember some of the birthdays from your youth more so than others. I know that I can. Uh, I don't remember how old I was on this birthday. I think I might have been 12 or 13. I'm not sure. But it was a birthday in which I was waiting for a very special gift. It was a Superman video game. It was like one of the big releases, arguably one of my favorites all time for the Super Nintendo. And I received it on that birthday. And on that birthday, after I received the gift, I was excited to play it, and my grandmother, my mother's mother, came over to watch us while my mom went for a quick errand run, which included going to the bank. Now, I'm young at that time, and I don't know much about, you know, life in the world, so to speak, but I know that when mom runs to the bank, it's usually not a long thing. So I go downstairs, and I begin playing my my video game, and I come up periodically just to check with my grandmother. Is mom back yet? No, no, she's not back yet. She'll be back soon all right, I go back downstairs, I'm playing my video game. Is mom back yet? No, she's not, she's not back yet. I'm advancing in my video game, I'm getting further. This is an important part of the story, as you'll see in a moment. And then as I go back upstairs periodically to check, on my like, grandma, mom's not back yet? And now apparently, as my memory, as I recall, this is before the days of cell phones, probably even before beepers were like a big thing. Maybe people had beepers, but mom didn't have a beeper. And if she did have a beeper, she didn't have a phone with which she can call me. And, and I don't remember all the details, but I remember like getting nervous. And so now I'm getting nervous. It went from patient waiting... But now it's progressing to something else at this point. I go back downstairs. I'm playing my game. I'm trying to distract my mind. I got farther on that day in that game than I ever did subsequently. And I didn't know God at that point. I wasn't, I wasn't believing the gospel. But I just reached out to the deity that I, that I, that I knew was there. And I said, if I shut this game, <laughs> will my mom come back? So in my little way, I'm trying to offer a sacrifice to the God I don't know, and I'm thinking if I do that, then maybe mom will come back. So I shut off the game. Mom's not back yet, but mom does eventually come back, and at that point, I'm like so glad to see her. I hug her. She's like, there's just a long line at the bank. For me, it felt like days. It went from patient waiting, is, is mom back yet, to desperate anguish. And I think that little situation could sometimes be a microcosm of what it feels like for Christians in times of extended trials. You start off and you, can, you patiently wait. Okay, this is new. I'm not really sure what to expect here. And you're patiently waiting. But then sometimes as the trial goes on, and sometimes when you don't necessarily see where the light at the end of the tunnel is, it could become desperate anguish. You could start saying the words that we see repeated in this psalm repeatedly, how long? Psalm 13 is a psalm that has often been identified as the how long psalm. It's not hard to see why. You're two verses into the psalm, and you see the words how long repeated four times. Different context for each one, but nonetheless, you see it said four times. Now, this is a question, how long, that we find one way or another presented to God throughout the scriptures. Here are just some examples. Job, for instance, asked God, how long... Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? He was just enduring so much. How long is this going to go on, so to speak? David in Psalm 35 wrote, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. Psalm 35, verse 17. In Psalm 79, verse 5, Asaph wrote, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? In Psalm 89, verse 46, Ethan the Ezraite writes, "How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire?" In the book of the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, "O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save?" In Lamentations 5:20 in between exalting Yahweh because He remains forever and His throne is from generation to generation, Lamentations 5.19, and then verse 21 where Jeremiah is asking the Lord to turn His people back to Him, the prophet Jeremiah writes, Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Even martyred saints depicted in Revelation 6 are depicted as saying, How long, O Lord, Holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Revelation chapter 6 verse 10. How long is a question that God has in his sovereignty deemed appropriate to have in his word which abides forever? How long? It's a question that we can easily relate to. It's not foreign to human experience. We know it on little small, small levels, like when you go to a doctor's office and you're in a waiting room, you might say, how long? <laughs> how long? But then we know it in more significant ways when we're going through seasons of trial, we say, how long? How long is this going to go on? It's a question that's not uh, foreign to human experience, but I love thinking of it this way as well. It's not foreign to God. Right? God's not ashamed of having that question inspired in His Word, written in His Word, by numerous authors. Like, it's repeated. Like, God's not hiding from the fact that his people are going to have moments in their lives when they're saying, how long? Or things like, will you forget us forever? Will your anger burn forever? It's not just the exception. It's, if you will, more so the rule. And was a writer in Spurgeon's uh, Treasury of David. You know, Spurgeon's Treasury of David, he not only offers his commentary on the Psalms, but then there'll be other writers that he'll quote in there. And I believe it was uh, W. Wilson who was quoted in, uh, with respect to this Psalm. And he spoke about the different people in the Scriptures who you can imagine saying things like, how long? Like the man who was sick for 38 years um, in John chapter 5. Or the woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. Or Lazarus, that poor beggar, who you can imagine him saying his whole life, how long? And it wasn't until the end of his life where he was, as the the story goes, brought to Abraham's bosom. So you can just imagine different people in different contexts crying out, how long? God's not ashamed to have that in his word. As a matter of fact, don't forget, this was, per the superscript, brought to the chief musician. So that the psalm could be played and that all the people of God could sing it. God knew his people would need to sing these words how long. So they might find a vehicle to express the sentiments and the emotions of their heart. But also, as we'll see, to find a vehicle where they might go from lament to praise. As so often is the case in the lament psalms. We see it start in lament. Psalm 13, it starts in lament. But by the time you get to the end of the psalm, we see praise. And that's so often the way it works for us. This is a psalm of transition. It begins in despair and it ends in rejoicing. It begins with some measure of anxiety over feeling that God is distant and it ends with David rejoicing in God's unfailing love and God's great salvation and God's goodness. So as a psalm of David, we don't know exactly what time in David's life this comes from, but there's many times. You can imagine when he was on the run from Saul, not for one year or two years, but for many years, that he'd be saying many times, how long? You can imagine when he was exiled again from Jerusalem. When Absalom took the throne, you can imagine him saying, how long? And there's even some other context where you might imagine David saying, how long? So we don't know the exact context, but we will learn a lot as we examine the words of this psalm. We begin in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, where we read, How long, O Lord, or O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So here we see in those two verses the fourfold repetition of the expression, How long, four times. Now we know scripturally, and we know that among the Jewish people culturally, that repetition served to communicate emphasis. right That's why sometimes in the New Testament, for instance, you'd see Jesus say things like "verily, verily," or "Amen, amen" before he would say something. It was, it was a kind of way of accenting what was to come. We see, for example, in Isaiah chapter six, that God is identified as Holy, holy, holy. There's the threefold repetition of God's holiness. We go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and we see the living creatures around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy. They're not just saying it for a moment per the text, they're saying it day and night. So the repetition serves to communicate emphasis. God is holy, holy, holy. And when you think of them saying it every night, you can get a better understanding of how holy God is. So here, when we see these words repeated uh, four times, granted, they are not said four times in a row. So we're not seeing how long, how long, how long, how long, but it is nonetheless repeated four times in two verses. So repetition is there. Emphasis is there. It provides us with some measure of insight into, as Spurgeon noted, David's great anguish of heart and his incessant desire for deliverance. I like how... Um, One commentator, Michael Wilcock, put it when he wrote, I think I smiled when I read this. I don't know. If I didn't smile externally, I smiled internally because um, I think we all can relate to this. He said, it's not only with the Lord that a day can be like a thousand years. (laughs) Now, granted, in the way that it is to the Lord, yes, it's uniquely like that to him, but there's a sense metaphorically when we can recognize um, recognize how that might feel for us in a creaturely way. Well, let's walk through these how longs in these verses. That opening question, you look at the beginning of verse one How long, O Lord, or O Yahweh? It's an incomplete sentence. That in itself helps communicate the emotion of David in this context as one who is wearied in waiting. How long, O Lord? You're going to find when he says how long, you're going to find that there are, you know, more words found in that sentence to kind of give a more complete thought. This is just an expression. How long, O Lord? How long? This is a place where the repetition or the petition is implied with the abbreviated question. And the implication is this, it's been a while, right? This isn't like David's trial started in the morning and it's the afternoon and he's like, how long? How long? You know, you might feel that way if you're like, you know, if you get hungry often, and you're like, man, I feel like I haven't eaten in days, and it's like, no, you just ate like three hours ago. This wasn't like what it was for David. His how long here implies that it's been a while. How long, O Lord? David continued by asking, will you forget me forever? Now, it doesn't take much to see that David felt like he was forgotten. And that feeling of feeling forgotten was likely driven by unanswered prayer. Namely, requests for deliverance that hadn't come or being in an unchanged situation. So David felt like he was forgotten. And not only was the situation unchanged, look at the language, David essentially wondered if it would ever change. I think that's what makes trial sometimes very difficult. He says, will you forget me forever? Is this ever going to change is the implication here. And I do think, as I just said, that's what can make trials particularly difficult, namely when you don't know if a a particular trial is going to end this side of eternity. But, if you were to ask that question, if you were to say to Yahweh, how long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? What do you think God's response might be to you? Well, I think His response could be found at least part of what you would imagine the response of God to be Found in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and the beginning of 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. So you may feel like that at a given point. You may feel like the expression befits your emotions. Will you forget me forever? But you know as a Christian, you know God has not forgotten you. God cannot forget you. That you're actually united with Him. You're one in Christ. You are united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. You are not forgotten by God. He has inscribed you on the palms of His hands, as it were. Rejoice and take comfort because of the work of Christ, your God is near to you, both now and forever, even if it feels like he's distant from you. It's worth noting a little bit of exposition here to go a little bit further. I think it's worth noting that the language of God's forgetting and the language of God's remembering essentially speak to divine intervention, unrealized Right? That's like what forgetting is in this context. Will you forget me? I haven't realized your divine intervention yet. Will you forget me? So his forgetting is essentially like divine intervention. Unrealized. It hasn't happened yet. Versus his remembering, which is essentially his intervention initiated and acted upon. So when the scripture says that God heard the groaning of the children of Israel and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... You see that in Exodus chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. The idea is that he would act to help in accordance with his covenant promises to the patriarchs. So that's what you're saying. Forgetting is like divine help that's not realized yet. And remembering is, to use language from Tremper Longman III, to remember is to act positively towards someone. To forget is the opposite, to withhold help and comfort. So hopefully that helps you understand a little bit more of what's implied in the language that's used there. Then we come to the last line of verse 1. David wrote, How long will you hide your face from me? Now Job asked a similar question. We see Job ask in Job chapter 13 verse 24, Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Now the idea behind David's question here, How long will you hide your face from me? is essentially, as Alan Ross had noted, that there was a withholding of God's favor in time, temporally, um, towards David here. You might remember the ironic blessing with which Aaron, as the high priest of Israel, would bless the people of Israel. That included a pronouncement over and towards the people of Israel that included a language like this, The Lord, or Yahweh, make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. A little bit later in the Psalms, we'll see David say, Lord, or Yahweh, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. See the connection there between favor and help, and you know, lack of his face being towards David, and trouble coming? That's what this is meant to connote in this context. So God's favorable disposition, which brought with it deliverance and help and success, was connoted by God's face shining upon his people. Now, just to be clear, to use language from an old hymn, if you are a Christian and if you are in Christ Jesus, you may deal with frowning providences. But as the old hymn goes, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So you may feel like God's face is hidden from you, but again, you know that you are united to God through Christ and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So you may feel like this, but you know that there's a reality that's far greater than you're feeling. God's face is favorably towards His children in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't chastise His children. That doesn't mean that we cannot grieve the Holy Spirit. It just means that we are positionally secure forever as His children. And there isn't wrath towards His people. So I think that's important to make that distinction from an old covenant context and us seeing where we are as new covenant Christians and the stability that we have in Christ and the temporal versus the eternal dynamics um, that I was just contrasting. Now David's despair here was rooted in the fact that he felt abandoned by God to some degree and that God had turned his face from him. Um, But his despair was not with God alone. It was also within himself And with others, again, to look at verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? So here are two more of the how long statements. In the first one, David says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul? The word for counsel here speaks of intellectual reasoning. Okay, so how long will I try to figure this out in my mind? I'm trying to reason this out. I'm trying to figure out what I could do, how could, I, how could how I could escape Saul, how I could overcome Absalom. I don't know the exact historical context you can imagine, but he's trying to reason it out in his soul. That could be rendered as within myself. So how long should I try to figure this out, taking intellectual counsel in my mind, within myself? And it wasn't working. It just led to continual sorrow. He said that he had sorrow daily. In the Greek uh, rendering of this, the words "kai nuktas" are added, which means "and night." So, day and night, but that's implied right here in the text anyway. So, in other words, he's trying to figure this out in his mind, and it's leading to nowhere but sorrow. The bombardment of anguish was continual. Do you know what that's like? Have you ever been in a situation where you try to figure out how you could get out of the situation? And you find that the more that you intellectually reason it out in your mind, it doesn't lead anywhere good. It actually reminds you that you have no hope in yourself. And I think this is a really good reminder for us that instead of trying to figure everything out, and I'm for trying to figure things out. I'm not saying don't figure things out. But we can't only internalize our issues. We have to take them to the Lord in prayer. I remember when, when we had the situation happen with Thea, when we were at that 20-week appointment when Lauren had that sonogram, I remember after, after we heard what we heard and that um, Thea was diagnosed with hydrocephalus, and as many of you know, the, the prognosis, I couldn't imagine a more grim prognosis um, than, uh, uh, other, other than you know impending death in, in the moments that were to ensue. But it was a prognosis that was... As, hard, as horrible as I could imagine a prognosis to be. And I remember going home and when we we, we, we wept, we wept quite a bit. And I remember for a time trying to figure out what, what, what we can do. And I, and I looked up whatever I could look up to say, is, is there any way that there could be a surgery that could be done in vitro, like in the womb? Is, is, is there anything, can there be a surgery? I, I looked up other, other things. Are there treatments when she comes out of the womb that we can. That we can do, and we can go here or we can go there. And I just remember feeling like everything was futile. People told me there is no surgery that you could do, there's nothing you could do. And one of the great graces in God's providence was that there was nowhere else to look, it wasn't like I had options. And in that season, that little phrase that was born out of the language of uh, Jehoshaphat's Eyes on the Lord um, prayer. All I kept kind of just reminding myself was eyes on the Lord. There was nothing else to do, and I was like, "What?" And I look back on it, I say, "What a grace!" Because I was protected, from, and I could do this from trying to reason everything out and trying to intellectualize of what we could do, strategize, figure out, do whatever we can do. And in that case, there was no option. And the God of the universe didn't have to do this, but by His grace, He intervened. And as you know, it was a. I think, a miraculous work of God as one um, neurosurgeon or one specialist with regards to neuroscience had said, it appears that an adjustment was made in the womb around the 20-week point. And thanks be to God, she's doing well. Still, we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. But again, David here is saying, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? So all I'm saying here, I'm not saying you don't try to figure things out. But you can't just internalize your issues. You have to take them to the Lord in prayer. And sometimes, instead of trying to figure things out, you just need to trust. And actually, when you're trying to figure things out, even then, you just need to trust. (laughs) When David wrote um, here, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? You get a little bit more of a glimpse into what he was going through. We don't know the exact detail, but apparently his enemy, whether it was Saul or somebody else, was raised to a position of power and authority and dignity. They were exalted over David. That's the implication of the language. So how long are they going to be in this position? I'm having continual sorrow. They're exalted over me. How long is that going to happen? I think Alan Ross put it well when he said, The lesson from this is that the exaltation of the wicked over believers is a call to prayer. Right, so he's he's seeing that the enemy's exalted over, over him, and what is he doing? He's praying to the living God. Now, before we move forward, I do want to I, I say something here. This is a little bit of a, I think, a good pastoral application. We're talking about times where we would say how long? Or times in which people in the scripture said how long. But it's worth us remembering that in the Word of God, God Himself also asks the question, how long? In Exodus 16:28, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Numbers chapter 14 verse 11, then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me and how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Numbers 14:27, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints with which the children of Israel make against me, which the children of Israel make against me. So I just want to issue a gospel call at this moment. Not only thinking about the times where we say how long, but imagine if God is asking you right now how long. How long will you not put your trust in the Son of God that the Father sent to this earth to die for sinners like us? How long will you put off the moment when you by the grace of God confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? How long? You do not know how long you have. If you hear his voice today, per the scriptures, do not harden your heart. Imagine the God of the universe stretching forth his hands to you saying, how long? Do you not see what I've done? You know what I've done. You've heard the testimony. You've heard the gospel. You've heard how I placed my son on a cross and I laid upon him the iniquity of my people and he bore the wrath that they deserve. How long will you not accept that as a gracious gift from me? How long will you go on thinking that you will be made right with me by your own works? Mm -hmm. How long will you put off repentance to tomorrow? Imagine the God of the universe asking you. Imagine, even for sons and daughters of God, if God were saying to you, How long? How long will you play both ends against the middle? How long will you have one foot in, one foot out? The kingdom, so to speak, in your practical daily living. How long? See, as we go through the psalm, we can imagine ourselves asking this question. But I think it's worth imagining God asking us that question. How long? But especially for anyone who hasn't come to the point of trusting in Jesus. May how long end today. And may you come to Christ. And if son or daughter of God, if there's something you have to turn from, may how long end today. And may you put away whatever you have to put away. Well, that brings us to verse 3 and 4, which is essentially the turning point of the psalm. This is like kind of the hinge, and this turns, um, it's the turning point of the psalm. Verses 3 and 4 read as follows. Consider and hear me, O Lord, or O Yahweh my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. You have to love this. David feels forgotten by God, right? Will you forget me forever? But he won't allow God to forget him, you might say. Now, of course, God did not forget him, but he feels forgotten. But nonetheless, he's not going to allow God to forget him. (laughs) So he prays, he petitions. And as Eric Lane, I think, well noted, the path from despair to victory is called prayer. For it is a path which elevates our thoughts from ourselves up to God. And that's essentially what we see here. So David begins in verse 3 and he says, consider. The root word that's used here essentially means to look or to gaze upon intently. So it's as though David, who feels as though God has hidden his face from him, which makes this wording, this petition all the more appropriate. Like, I feel like you've hidden your face from me, so I'm asking you to consider, maybe a little bit more literally, look. Look and behold. You have to love that. David feels like God is hiding his face, but he doesn't retreat into prayerless despair. He prays, consider. And then he says, hear me, O Lord, my God. The root word hear can essentially mean answer or respond. I think of um, David here, not turning away from God and despair, but pursuing God. I think of um, what, uh, at this point, Thea is doing like quite often, more than more than before, um, like for example, when, when she wants my attention, like this happened this morning, she'll say, daddy, 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 and sometimes, sometimes it's dad in the mix of it, but it's like, daddy, and, and why does she keep saying that? Because she feels like I haven't responded yet, right, and, some, and sometimes I haven't, maybe I'm talking to somebody, or maybe I'm, you know, I'm doing something, and I'm about to answer her, maybe I answered her five times in a row, and this time I'm just giving it a little bit more time, but she's like, daddy, daddy, daddy. Even if she doesn't see me look at her right away, she's still asking. Because she's anticipating at some point I'm going to respond. And I just think it's a great illustration of what David's essentially doing, what David's doing here. I don't feel like you're listening. I don't feel like you see me, but I'm going to keep speaking to you. Why? Because you are, look at the language here, my God. My God. As Alec Mortier noted, notice my Personal faith remains under trial. Right, David in his affliction didn't go to another deity. Think about you by the grace of God. In your times of affliction. You didn't say, I can't believe that God has allowed this to happen in my life. I'm going to try a different deity. I'm going to try Allah this week. I'm going to try a different religion. I'm going to see about the teachings of Buddha or Confucius. I'm going to go try somewhere else. No, by the grace of God you don't do that. And even like David here. Even though he hasn't gotten the answer he wants. He nonetheless pursues The God who is His God, my God. You even think about Jesus on the cross, right? Quoting from Psalm 22, you could look at a place like Mark chapter 15, verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't want to overlook those personal pronouns right there. My God. Here, David prayed, "Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death." Now, the language and the idea here is clear. David saw himself on the, um, on the brink of death. He saw that death was a likely impending prospect. So he asked for God to enlighten his eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Now that phrase, enlighten the eyes, speaks to, as Calvin has noted, how the eyes connote the rigor of life. You can see in a place like, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 27, Remember when Jonathan, Saul's son, was weak due to hunger, he ate of the honeycomb, and the scripture says his countenance was brightened, or more literally, his eyes brightened. And the idea here is that David thought, unless God had enlightened his eyes and restored vigor and liveliness, he would sleep the sleep of death. You might know this in Old Testament and New Testament alike. There are examples where sleep is a euphemism for death. You think of it particularly in New Testament context being associated with the death of a believer. In the Old Testament, it's just a euphemism for death oftentimes. In like Jeremiah 51-39, uh, Daniel 12-2. So David is in a situation here where he's basically arguing, right? He's, he's, he's laying forth an argument before God as to why God should help him. Isn't that an interesting argument? Consider me and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I die, basically. That's his argument. And you might say, well, what is that? How is that going to kind of persuade, if you will, I'm using anthropomorphic language, persuade God? Like, why is that an argument, lest I die? And I think Spurgeon put it very well when he said that it's a plea which has power with grace. That's the idea. It's a plea that has power with grace. And I think also it's connected with covenant promises of what God was going to do through David. So it's pleading based on grace, but it's also in light of what God had promised to do, setting up David as king and the Davidic line that would come from him and so on. We see a little bit more of that in verse, in verse 4. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, or more literally perhaps, I have proved able for him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So David is basically saying, if you don't rescue me and if I die here, my enemies are going to rejoice. They're going to say I've prevailed against David. They're going to rejoice when I'm moved, when I stumble, when I fall, or when I die. And you say, well, how then is this an argument? Because that's what David's doing here. He's giving God reasons for why he thinks God should help him. And I think the idea here is rather clear. Not only would the arrogance and the evil and the blasphemy of David's enemies be put on display, but if he were to sleep the sleep of death, God's name would be dishonored. Because David was God's anointed And there were promises about what would happen through David and so on. This line of thinking reflects, I think, um, the line of thinking of David in a number of the psalms. Psalm 23, verse 3, second half. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Psalm 25, verse 11. For your namesake, O Yahweh, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm 143, verse 11. Revive me, O Yahweh, for your namesake, for your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. So David is praying that he would be delivered from, delivered from death, at least in large measure, so that God's name wouldn't be brought through the mud. So that God would not suffer, if you will, defamation of his reputation. And it's worth us just considering how often do we pray what we're praying for God's name and for God's renown and for God's glory. Right? How often are our prayers just limited to Ourselves are people. And there's a place for, right? The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So loving people is a good thing. And bringing your cares to the Lord, it's a biblical thing. But our greatest priority should be God's glory. Think of how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? Where do you begin with? Do you begin with, give me this day my daily bread? No, you say, our Father who is in heaven, let your name be regarded as holy. So the priority is God's name, God's renown, God's holiness. And there is a place for our petitions and our needs and our help. But the priority is God and God's glory. Now it brings us to verse five, when the petition turns, if you will, to a song of praise and faith. We see that in verses five and six, but I start with verse five. But I have trusted in your mercy, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You have to love this little psalm begins in lament and we're not too far into it where all of a sudden the petitions happen in verses 3 and 4 and by the time we get to verse 5 we're seeing a change here. It begins with a strong adversive at the beginning of verse 5. But I, so help me lest I sleep the sleep of death. My enemies, they're going to rejoice if they prevail against me. They're ready to rejoice at my fall. He had enemies against them but he says in this moment, but I, despite all of that, the emphatic, But I, his feet didn't slip, as one commentator noted, but moved by grace, he cleaves to the mercy of God. Notice per the text where David put his trust, but I have trusted in your mercy. That Hebrew word that's used here could be rendered as unfailing love, like in the NIV, steadfast love as in the ESV, Um, NASB. I think the 1995 version has loving kindness, There. It's essentially loving kindness and mercy that flows from God's benevolence and faithfulness. That's essentially what it is. Interestingly, the word order in the Hebrew has it where God's mercy comes first. It basically reads like this In your mercy I have trusted, but in your mercy I have trusted. So David was trusting in God's mercy, his unfailing love. And that drives what comes next. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So the same word he used earlier to speak of how his enemies would rejoice if he were to stumble and fall. But now in this moment, he's using it to describe the joy that he had and would have in God's salvation. So he's expecting God's deliverance at this point. He's expecting God's help. Just as a, as a brief aside, just by way of instructing you in prayer giving you some instruction for prayer. If you're praying without some measure of expectation, you got to wonder what your prayer is actually. Like, if you're asking God for help and you aren't really expecting help, don't you think there's something wrong with that? I'm not telling you to perfectly predict how God's going to help you. Right? I think there could be problems with that. Because if you say, God, help me in this way, and all you're looking for is this, and he's like helping you in these ways. You know, he's just not helping me. yet he's helping you in so many other ways, but you just want him to help you in this way. I'm not telling you to just look out for the one way in which you want him to help you. I'm saying be on the lookout for help. Because if you're asking for help, do you have expectation of help? If you're asking him for wisdom, do you have expectation of wisdom? If you're asking him for for just grace to endure, are you expecting that grace to come? Are, Are you expecting these things? Because you are talking to the living God with whom you're in a relationship with. You're not just doing some independent religious thing where you're saying some words independently from the God with whom you're speaking. And I think expectation is oftentimes a good barometer of how vital our prayer life actually is. The trap is when you just start expecting whatever you want and then you impose that upon the God of the universe who's infinitely wise and may have so many other better ways of helping you. But nonetheless, you should expect his help. David did. He expected God's help here. But notice it hasn't happened yet. David's circumstances aren't changed, but he is, if you will, changed. In verse 6, he says, I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. (laughs) As Spurgeon noted, the mercy seat has so refreshed the poor weeper that he clears his throat for a song. (laughs) If we have mourned with him, let us now dance with him. So the fourfold repetition of how long, how long, how long, how long gives way now to this declaration here. I will sing. So what's the context here? Having placed his trust in God's unfailing love, verse 5a, Having expected God's help and God's deliverance, God's salvation, verse 5b, he now resolves to sing. And think what singing connotes. Pretty easy to think about what it connotes celebration, joy, cheer. That's where he is. He had, as Calvin put it, a cheerfulness that rose above the present sorrow. And that's so often what God could do in the midst of prayer. You might go into the prayer closet weeping, and you might come out singing so often it is the case it's somewhat to me reminiscent of hannah who was in bitterness of soul and she wept in her and she wept in anguish as she prayed to yahweh in first samuel chapter 1 verse 10 and yet after she had finished and had a brief exchange with um, eli she went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad first samuel chapter 1 verse 18 so david here having fresh assurance of god's help fresh trust in God's mercy, he resolves to sing. And the singing I want you to see is connected to both past and future grace. He's expecting help, but it's also connected to past help. Look at the last phrase here in verse 6. David says that he will sing, and the second half of the verse here, he uses the simple, perfect tense. He didn't write, because he will deal bountifully with me. He writes, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Because he has dealt bountifully. He's not speaking of a reward. You might look at how this Hebrew word is used here. And it could sometimes in certain contexts be noted of reward, in the context of um, a reward being issued. But this here speaks of how God dealt graciously with David. And there are many aspects of God's gracious dealings with David that we could itemize. But I do think it's worth noting that he's in this moment. Either two things are happening. Maybe both at the same time. Looking back, per the tense of the verb here, looking back at God's past bounty. So it's like, I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. I'm going to rejoice. I shall rejoice future in your salvation. So I know you're going to help me, but I'm also rejoicing. I'm going to sing because you have helped me before. And the way you've helped me in the past is fanning the flames of my expectation for your help in the future. It may be a sense in which he's using, as some commentators note, a perfect of certainty where he's having used the future tense in verse 5, now he's using the past tense as though it's like a done deal, like I know you're going to help me. I think George Swinnock noted well when he said, And for your comfort, and for thy comfort, know that he who began his psalm with, How long wilt thou forget me? O Lord, forever, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? comes to conclude it with, I will sing unto the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. So let me encourage you, saints. If you find yourself in a season where you could see yourself well singing how long, how long, how long, let me encourage you to bring your how longs to the Lord. And you might come out of your time of praying how long, rejoicing in God's great salvation, Rejoicing in the help that He has provided for you and will provide for you. And you might find yourself cheered, going in the prayer closet one way and coming out another way. Thanks be to God. Should you ever feel abandoned, please know. You who are in Christ Jesus, you are never abandoned. He will never leave you or forsake you. But should you feel that way, A, know that you're not, and B, May you exude trust, even as David did in this psalm when he felt abandoned. And may you know that when you feel that way, that even Jesus on the cross issued words to the Father, quoting Psalm 22, to express that sentiment of the psalmist, and more ultimately to show that the text of Psalm 22 was being fulfilled, and that he was bearing the wrath of God for his people. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and our feelings in more ways than we can even imagine. And so should you find yourself in a season where you're saying how long, I want to encourage you to see David here and to persevere in prayer and to know that David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, is working in you both to will and do the good pleasure of God so that you might endure and that you might come from a place of lament to praise. Last thought. Last thought. No for you as a Christian. The terminal point, right? The end of every situation. So when I say terminal point, right? You think of a terminal. So, right, if you're on a train and you pull into the terminal, right? The terminal point for you as a Christian in every situation, ultimately, ultimately, will be one of rejoicing. The terminal point. Either you're going to be in a trial and the trial is going to end, or you're going to rejoice in the trial, or the trial is going to end and you're going to rejoice that the trial's over, or if you go home to be with the Lord, it ends with rejoicing. The terminal point for you is joy. So you may say how long, because you really wonder how long you're going to endure certain things, but you do know the terminal point for you. Whether it's a temporal one or an eternal one is always going to be joy. We're called to rejoice in moments. Rejoice in all situations. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and all things give thanks. So we should expect that. We can't expect trials to end. But even if they weren't the side of eternity, when it does end, there's joy unending (laughs) on the other side of it. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the text of Psalm 13. Thank you for all the instruction that we as children can... Keep coming to you. Uh, And we could say uh, our own equivalents of daddy, daddy. We could ask you how long. And yet we could trust your perfect timing and your gracious dealings with us, Lord. Thank you. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that in the situations in which saints find themselves where that petition, uh, for that expression, how long, could be one that they could so see on their lips. We pray that their hearts, Lord, might be freshly encouraged even this day. That you might enlighten their eyes, Lord. Enlighten our eyes where we need it, Father. Lest we sleep the sleep of death. But Lord, oftentimes we need that enlightenment spiritually. Even as Paul prayed for the church of Ephesus. That the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. So Father, help us in the midst of the trials we face, Lord. To feel your help um, practically. and with Maybe literal, our eyes being enlightened. But also, Lord, Lord, may you help us spiritually even as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened so that we may honor you in a way that is appropriate in the midst of our trials. Father, thank you that you have dealt bountifully with us. It's, and that's like an understatement of all understatements. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have reserved for us unending joy forever. I conclude, Father, with just asking if there'd be anyone in this place or to whom you would say, as it were, how long? Now, how long will you not receive my son as your savior? How long will you not confess him as Lord and trust him in him for the forgiveness of sins? Father, I pray and we pray that you would lead such a one to yourself. Thank you, Lord, that we could, I think any of us could see how you could have said that to us so many times, but then by your grace, the how long ended and you opened up our eyes to Christ. May by your grace, Lord, where appropriate you do such a work, even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.